Welcome to Reaching Your Peak, an educational storytelling mini-series of the Elk Talk podcast. This is Corey Jacobson, and today I'm going to be sharing a story from one of my previous do-it-yourself public land elk hunts, and then breaking down a strategy or a tactic that was instrumental in the success of that hunt. Reaching Your Peak is brought to you by Peak Refuel. If you're looking for delicious freeze-dried meals that are made with 100% real ingredients, including premium USDA meats, you've probably already heard of Peak Refuel. Their meals have nearly twice as much protein as the competition, which is important for fueling your body in the backcountry. There's no fillers, no empty calories, just premium nutrition that truly meets the needs of elk hunters. And the taste is second to none. My personal favorites are their homestyle chicken and rice and the beef stroganoff, but they have a huge selection of other incredible meals like chicken alfredo, biscuits and gravy, chicken coconut curry, sweet pork and rice, mountain berry granola, and a whole lot more. If you want to taste the difference, visit peakrefuel.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 15% and get free shipping on your next order. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Reaching Your Peak. And if you have ideas or suggestions that you'd like to see incorporated into future episodes, just let me know. You can go to elktalkpodcast.com and click on the contact link there and send me an email. And if you would, be sure and like and subscribe to these podcasts wherever you listen to your podcast. It'll help Randy and I continue to grow the Elk Talk platform. Also, we have a winner for the Prime Revix bow that we gave away in the last episode. And I'm going to be announcing that winner just a little bit later here in this episode. But for right now, let's kick off the storytelling. When it comes to answering the question of what is your best day of elk hunting, it would be difficult for me to isolate one single day that I would consider to be the best. There have been so many incredible days. My first elk, uh, each of my kiddos' first elk, Donnie's first elk, cameraman John's biggest elk uh, a couple years ago. There are just way too many incredible elk hunting experiences for me to pick which one's the best. But if you were to ask me what is the best day for elk hunting, that's a question I can't answer. And coincidentally, the story I'm about to share could possibly answer both of those questions. The year was 2009. I had officially kicked off a new elk hunting website the year before called elk101.com, and I'd been brainstorming all kinds of ideas for creating exciting elk hunting content that other elk hunters would enjoy. I had just purchased an expensive new video camera, the trusty old Sony GL2, And for the first time, I was taking a full two weeks of vacation from work to make this a truly unforgettable elk season. Little did I know at the time just how memorable it would end up being. For those of you who know my elk hunting partner, Donnie, he and I had just started hunting together two or three years prior to this season. And we'd also recruited another good friend of ours, Dave Perry, to hunt with us that season. Our plan was to hunt together on opening weekend in an area that I'd hunted for many years, and then partway through the next week, 
we'd regroup and head into some incredibly remote country that we'd scouted for a, probably an eight or nine day bivy hunt. Donnie and I had spent the spring and summer leading up to this season competing in triathlons, which really was fueled exclusively by our desire to be in the best shape we could possibly be in for elk season. Dave, who was several years younger than us, was also in great shape, so there were going to be no limitations in the distance or the difficulty of the terrain that we'd need to take to lead us into elk. One of the ideas that I'd come up with for content for my new website was to video every day of our elk hunting adventure and then share it on our newly created YouTube channel as a day-by-day -day elk hunt. Keep in mind, this was 14 years ago, a time when there were very few elk hunting or any hunting videos on YouTube. In fact, YouTube was mostly just short videos of cats chasing lasers and at the time, it was a far cry from the content platform that it is today. We decided we'd just rotate through the different responsibilities each day. One of us would be the shooter, one of us the caller, and the other the cameraman. So we drove to our initial hunting area on a Friday evening. It was Friday, September 4th to be exact. And we'd be starting our hunt on a completely full moon. I'd spent the previous three days leading up to that finishing a paver patio at our house. That was my big pre-season honeydew project, and I did it in 100 plus degree heat. And I was looking forward to getting to the mountains and finding some cooler temperatures. On the drive up to camp, though, I wasn't feeling all that great, and I just chalked it up to being exhausted and probably slightly dehydrated from the past several days of manual labor in the extreme heat. We got to camp and got it set up, and even though I wasn't feeling all that well, we decided to take a drive and just see if we could get an elk to bugle and hopefully give us a good, solid starting point for the next morning. And fortunately, we did. Being the 4th of September, it was still really early in the season, so we didn't get much in terms of an aggressive response, but we did get a faint bugle from about a half mile up on the ridge above the logging road that we were driving in on. The next morning, we were parked in that same place and started hiking up the mountain as the first light started peeking over the skyline across the canyon behind us. The bull that we had heard bugle the night before was bugling on his own that morning, but he was further up the mountain than where he'd been the night before. And we were hiking up the mountain in his direction every time that we got to a new vantage point we just stopped to catch our breath and let out a bugle just keeping tabs on where the bull was as well as trying to get a better idea of where he might be going. After just a few minutes of hiking we reached a vantage point which was just a flat bench at the top of a really steep hillside and we stopped there to let some oxygen find its way into our bloodstream when I looked over and saw a movement uh, coming through the chest high cyanothus up the hill to my right. I quickly indicated that I could see an elk, and I was out in front, so I knocked an arrow. Donnie slid back a little bit to call, uh, if needed, and then Dave moved up right behind me with the video camera. At this point, I could see it was just a smaller raghorn bull, but even on our first morning, I wasn't about to let a tender bull like that get away, especially with it being so close to the logging road we had driven in on. Plus, there were still some leftover non-resident elk tags that I could buy, and if I got really lucky, maybe even shoot two bulls that season. 
The bull was slipping in silently and is trying to work its way below us to get our wind, but before he could make it around below us, I came to full draw, and as he stopped to cautiously look around and survey the surroundings, I shot. We were less than an hour into our elk season, and we had the first bull down. To make things even better, the bull ran down the hillside a couple hundred yards before he died and made it to the logging road we had just driven in on. He died probably 10 yards or so below that road, so it's going to be a pretty short pack out. As we got the bull cut up, we put the quarters in game bags and then set them off to the side in some shade. And then once we had all the meat in the game bags, we started shuttling them back up the steep bank, literally just 10 or 15 yards up to the logging road and right into the back of Donnie's Suburban. We didn't even use pack frames or packs. As I was packing one of the quarters up the hill in my arms, I felt the sharp bite or sting on my forearm under the game bag I was carrying. And I literally dropped the game bag and expected to see a wasp or a hornet or a bee trapped under the quarter. But to my surprise, there was a tick on my arm. I was even more surprised to realize that it had been the tick that was the source of that somewhat sharp and painful bite. But I just flicked it off and picked the quarter up and carried it the rest of the way up the hill. And by the time I made it up to the truck and put the quarter in the back of the Suburban, I'd forgotten all about the tick. We loaded the elk quarters on a tarp that was in the back of Donnie's Suburban and then cranked the air conditioner on high and started a two-hour drive back into the closest town where we could hang our meat until we got done uh, with our hunt. As we started unloading game bags to hang them in the walk-in cooler, though, we noticed the back of Donnie's Suburban was literally crawling with ticks. I'd seen ticks before on bear and deer that we'd shot, but never seen them on an elk, especially like this. The source of, of all the ticks was the elk head that we had left on the tarp that we had loaded in the back of the Suburban next to the meat. And the ticks were literally crawling out of the hair that was left on the head, out of the ears. They were just coming out of everywhere. It was odd for sure. And I think we commented uh, that we'd never seen anything like that before, but we did our best to just sweep them out of the back of the Suburban and then just wrap the elk head in a garbage bag and put some duct tape around the top of it to keep any more of those nasty things from crawling out. And then after we got the meat hung in the cooler, we just drove back into the nearest little town there and found a diner and rewarded ourselves with cheeseburgers and fries and mountain berry milkshakes. And then before we headed back to camp, I told Donnie, hey, let's swing by the local uh, sporting goods store. And I went in and purchased that second leftover elk tag, uh, which in Idaho at the time, if there were leftover tags, you could purchase them at the non-resident price. It was an optimistic uh, action for sure, but with so many days still left in our season, I was confident we could get bulls for Donnie and for Dave and hopefully have a few days left where I could try and fill that second tag. Just six hours after we had loaded the elk into the back of Donnie's SUV, we were pulling back into our camp ready for round two. But something was off. I was starting to get dizzy and nauseous, and my heart rate seemed to be a lot higher than normal. I wasn't sure if maybe it was just some lingering heat exhaustion from my work in the sun the week before, or maybe it was the mountain berry milkshake, but something was making me feel quite a bit less than well. 
I decided an afternoon nap there at camp would probably cure whatever it was. But when I woke up an hour and a half later, things were actually worse. My resting heart rate was considerably higher than the 56 beats per minute it had been all summer while I'd been training for triathlons. I was also feeling some kind of weird anxiety and not the kind that I'd been experiencing all week anticipating the upcoming elk hunt. Something definitely wasn't right and almost in desperation I just waded out into the middle of the creek next to our camp and started violently just splashing water on my face hoping that would help but it didn't. I was trying to stay calm and I told Donnie and Dave that something was wrong and I wasn't sure what but I thought we might need to head in to the ER. So we jumped in Dave's truck and on the drive back into town, uh, I checked my heart rate and it was over 150 beats per minute. And I was just sitting there in the passenger seat. I knew something was going on, but I didn't have any idea what. I didn't know if I was having a heart attack. I was only 34 years old and arguably in the best shape of my life. Maybe the dehydration and heat exhaustion had finally caught up to me. I can remember as we pulled into the hospital, uh, feeling just a sense of relief, probably from knowing that there was professional medical help just through the doors, but also knowing that I could finally release the white-knuckled grip that I had from desperately trying to hold on as Dave squealed the tires around every corner on the way into the hospital. At the hospital, they ran multiple tests, but in the end, they just diagnosed me as being severely dehydrated. I mentioned a few times to the ER doc that I'd been bitten by a tick earlier in the day, so I think more just to appease my concerns than anything else, they gave me some Benadryl to go along with the two bags of IV fluids that they gave me. A few hours later, uh, things seemed to be settling down, and they sent me back out on my way. For this episode, uh, I'm going to spare you all the details and the full story of how Lyme disease drastically changed my life over the next several years. But for two more days, uh, we tried to hunt and I kept experiencing just crazy unexplainable symptoms and ended up in the ER again. And we decided it's probably best to just postpone Uh, the second phase of our hunt, till I could figure out what was going on with my health. I spent the next week visiting all kinds of specialists, cardiologists and pulmonologists, internal medicine doctors, uh, even an arrogant infectious disease expert who laughed at me when I told him I'd been bitten by a tick, but no one could come up with any explanation for my continuing racing heart rate or any of the other symptoms that I was suddenly experiencing. At the end of that week, and with six of our elk hunting days now wasted, I was still feeling horrible, and the list of unexplainable symptoms had only increased, but the thought of waiting another 12 months for the next elk rut, and with three tags still burning holes in our pockets, I decided my health journey could resume once September ended. At this point, the likelihood of getting two bulls in the next six or seven days seemed like a long shot at best, and the money I had literally just spent to buy that leftover elk tag at the non-resident price felt like it was going to be a complete waste. We knew that going deep into the backcountry like we had originally planned wasn't going to be an option. 
heck, I could barely walk up our stairs in our house without blacking out. But we knew we could hopefully find an elk or two somewhat close to the roads and with a little good luck, hopefully fill another tag or two. The first couple days that we were back up in elk country were really slow. The one bull that we did get to bugle drug us three or 400 yards down the hillside below the road and then went completely silent. And it took me over an hour to really slowly climb back up to the road. My heart was pounding out of my chest like I'd never experienced before, just trying to get back up to the road. But we were elk hunting. Since we weren't seeing or finding much action in that area, we decided to drive back over to where our original camp was and spend the last three or four days of our hunt hunting over on that side. After getting things set back up at camp, we headed out for a quick evening hunt, and we only had maybe 30 minutes or so of daylight left, but we got a response from a bull up on the ridge a few hundred yards above the road. And as we moved in toward the bull, he was bugling on his own, and as we got closer, I'd cut him off every time he bugled. We moved up to within probably 100 or 150 yards of the bull, and Donnie moved up probably 40 yards and set up on the right side of the ridge we were on, and Dave moved up about the same distance and set up on the left side. I stayed back and started raking a tree, and as soon as I started raking the tree, the bull bugled, and I screamed a challenge right back at him. Immediately, I could hear heavy hooves, footsteps, coming down the mountain, plowing in the dry pine needles as he came crashing down the hill, down that ridge that we were set up on. Donnie and Dave were both at full draw, but like it seems to happen more times than not, the bull just sensed something wasn't right, and as he stepped out, he stopped right behind the one tree that was preventing both of them from getting a clear shot. And just like that, the bull whirled and ran back up the ridge to his cows just as the last little bit of daylight was fading into darkness. On our way back to camp, we decided to stop and pull over and bugle from a pullout along the road where we'd stopped to bugle quite a few times in the past, both that season as well as previous seasons, and see if we could get anything to bugle. So far that season, every time we'd stopped there, we hadn't heard anything. But that night, uh, something had changed. There were bugles coming, it seemed like from every direction around the meadow that was adjacent to the road there at that pullout. And the bulls were bugling completely on their own. So we stood there for just a minute listening and then quietly got back in the truck and headed back to camp with a solid plan and quite a bit of excitement for the next morning. 30 minutes or so before daylight the next morning, we parked in the same pullout and quietly made our way out into the middle of the meadow. The bulls were still bugling on their own, so we just checked the wind and then really quietly moved out towards the closest sounding bull. That bull was to our right as we were moving in and was engaged in a pretty heated debate with another bull that was probably 400 or 500 yards back behind us, which made it really easy for us to just slip in between the two bulls without ever having to even announce that we were there. Dave was running the camera that morning, and I was the caller, and Donnie was set up on point as the shooter. The three of us just kind of stood there in the middle of the meadow, taking in all the bugles that were coming from literally every direction, and waiting for shooting light so that we could chime into the action. 
And then as soon as it got light enough to, to be able to see and light enough to shoot, I started to bugle. And we were probably 150 or 200 yards away from that closest bull. But in the darkness, we hadn't noticed that there were cows just 80 or 100 yards off to our left. And what could have turned into a real disaster actually turned out to be a good thing. When I bugled, the cows immediately busted for the timber on their side of the meadow. But the bull that was on the other side uh, of the opening wasn't at all happy that another bull had gotten so close to his cows and he immediately came running straight to us. He wasn't running to follow his cows as they busted into the timber. He was coming straight into the bugle. The bull came out and stopped probably 80 yards or so away from Donnie and kind of locked in, stood there looking in our direction for what seemed like forever. I slowly turned my head uh, to the right and covering my mouth with my hand just gave a soft cow call and that was all that bull needed to hear. He turned to his left and started walking straight to me and at about 30 yards he stopped broadside to Donnie who was already at full draw and his shot made a solid thump and the bull crashed off into the timber where the cows had ran off to our left. Instinctively I just let out a bugle to calm the bull as he was running off like we always do and that bugle was immediately answered by the bull that had been bugling from back behind us. Not one to ever let an opportunity pass, I whispered to Dave, grab your bow. And as Donnie came up, we gave him a quick high five, and then Dave handed the camera to Donnie and picked up his bow, and we started running across the open meadow towards a little small patch of timber that was between us and where that bull was bugling. As we got to the edge of the timber, I stayed back on the bottom edge of a small rise where the timber started, and then Dave and Donnie slipped up onto the rise and got set up on the far edge of the timber patch where they were overlooking another small section of the meadow that we were in. The bull that was bugling and his cows were incredibly vocal, and a challenge from this new intruder was more than he was willing to tolerate. Every time he bugled, and he was bugling a lot on his own, I would cut him off. And by the time he came into view 200 yards from Donnie and Dave, he was running at us at a steady trot. The bull ended up running right past a little uh, sapling that Dave had already ranged at about 40 yards. And when he came to a stop, he stopped right behind a small patch of brush out in the meadow that prevented any chance for Dave to get a shot. And when the bull couldn't see the other bull that had been challenging him, he turned and started heading back to his cows. And as he turned to leave, Dave stopped him with a cow call. And for the second time in less than 20 minutes, I heard the sound of an arrow impacting the body of an elk. Dave initially thought that he had missed the shot, but I assured him I had heard an impact. And Donnie quickly rewound the footage and confirmed that it was a hit. The hit was a little bit back. Uh, actually, it was quite a bit back, but it was a solid body hit for sure. We knew we had our work cut out for us, both in terms of packing and uh, likely in tracking on Dave's bull. Due to the shot being so far back, we decided to give Dave's bull some extra time, and we went back and started tracking Donnie's bull. And we ended up finding his bull, a really nice six by six bull, just 200 yards or so into the timber where it had ran uh, after the shot. And we got a few pictures and then got the bull cut up and we hung it there in the shade next to a cool little creek that was running through the meadow. 
since it was just a few hundred yards away from where David shot his bull, we decided to head back over and see if we could find blood from Dave's shot before we started packing Donnie's bull out. And we ended up finding a few drops of blood, probably 80 yards or so from where David shot his bull. And we were able to follow the bull to where he had got to the edge of the meadow and then entered into the timber. But once he went in the timber, we really struggled to find more than just a drop or two of blood at a time. And we ended up tracking the bull for probably an hour or so before it led us to a shady little bench uh, up on the side of the mountain. And I really should have known that this was a, a likely place for a wounded bull to bed down. It was a thick bench covered in alders. But as we followed that sparse blood and the tracks onto the bench, we ended up bumping the bull. And Dave's bull was still uh, very much alive. So we decided to go back and get Donnie's bull packed out and then come back and start uh, the tracking on Dave's bull again. It probably took us two hours or so to get Donnie's bull back to the truck. And he decided once we got back that he was going to take his meat straight into town and get it in a cooler since it was still fairly warm out. And Dave and I just went back uh, to start tracking his bull. It wasn't an easy tracking job at all. And the bull ended up going almost another two miles from where we bumped it with no blood. Uh, fortunately, it had a really big foot and we were able to just stay on the tracks and eventually followed the tracks right up to where the bull was laying dead. It was uh, got up to a timbered ridge where it could overlook uh, the drainage on the other side as well and died right there. And fortunately, where it died, there was a logging road that came up underneath the ridge uh, in that drainage below us. It was a huge bodied bull, one of the bigger bodied bulls that I can remember seeing and had really goofy antlers. It was a six point on one side and a, I think a three point on the other with a great big long spike. But Dave and I got the bull cut up and got it all ready to pack down the ridge right as Donnie pulled up and drove around on that logging road below us. The three of us got the bull packed back down to the truck and made it back down there. It's probably 10 p.m. by the time we got it all down there and we got back to camp probably between 10:30 and 11. By the way, this was Dave's first elk ever. It was a little after midnight, I think, when we finally crawled in our sleeping bags and we were physically and mentally exhausted from the long day. It definitely been a day that was going to be hard to beat. Two mature bulls, 20 minutes apart, shot less than 200 yards apart. And those were the last thoughts that went through my mind that night as the ibuprofen kicked in and overcame the sore muscles and any lingering adrenaline. Six hours later, the alarm clock started going off. And I guarantee you the snooze button got a good workout for the better part of 20 or 30 minutes that morning. The sun was already coming up over the mountains as we started the drive back to that same pullout next to the same meadow and hoped that there was still some uh, good bugling going on nearby. It was well after daylight when we left the truck, and for some reason, probably the fact that we had uh, walked all through the meadow and killed two elk there, things were considerably quieter than they had been 24 hours before. We convinced our stiff legs and our sore backs to take us back along the trail across the meadow, right back literally to the exact location where we'd been standing when Donnie shot his bull the morning before. Just before we made it back to that spot, though, 
a bull bugled off to our right. So we scrambled up the trail 50 yards or so and stopped to bugle and the bull screamed back less than 200 yards away. And as he bugled, his cows were going crazy and we could hear elk running out in the meadow. And I bugled again and immediately saw some movement coming in from our right. And the bull stepped out of some trees into a little opening coming straight towards us. So I just dropped my bugle tube to the ground and ranged a tree there in the meadow between me and the bull. And then I just turned my head, gave a soft cow call, and I found the string with my release and was at full draw just as the bull cleared that tree 40 yards in front of us. He stopped and I shot and we watched him pile up right there less than 40 yards away. We stood there in complete disbelief. And as we kind of just looked at each other, like, what just happened? You know, we can't believe that. All three of us started just saying, unbelievable. That was incredibly unbelievable. We were standing less than 100 yards from where Donnie had shot his bull just 24 hours earlier. Three really mature herd bulls, all within 250 yards of each other, all shot in a matter of 24 hours. Keep in mind, this is 100% public land with over-the-counter tags. It seems like every two or three years, we have an elk hunting experience that leaves us saying, we'll never be able to top this season. And while we've had a lot of incredible elk hunting experiences over the 15 or so seasons since that experience, I'm not sure that we've had one that beats it. When it comes to elk hunting success, confidence is critical. And confidence in my gear and my equipment is something I'm just not willing to compromise. And that's why I shoot a Prime bow. As a mechanical engineer, when I first saw the technology Prime was designing into their bows, I was intrigued. Cam lean had always been an issue on other bows I'd shot, which made tuning the bows and ultimately getting consistent arrow flight nearly impossible. But four shots into my first prime bow, it was tuned, and my arrows were flying perfectly. The draw cycle was smooth, and the back wall was solid. And they didn't stop there. In the years since I've started shooting a prime bow, they've added center shot technology, which allows the bow to lock on the target and keeps my pins from wandering around. They've also recently designed a new cam that completely eliminates cam lean that was previously caused by the offset cable design. Prime bows are continually leading the way when it comes to new technology and technology that makes a difference, not just some marketing gimmick that a marketing department can use to advertise a new model. There's no doubt that the stability of my Prime bow has improved my accuracy, extended my range, and increased my confidence. To learn more about Prime stability or to shoot one for yourself, visit your local bow shop or go to g5prime.com. Speaking of Prime Archery, we have a Prime Revix bow to give away. A huge thank you to everyone who listened to the first episode of Reaching Your Peak and then went to the Elk Talk podcast website to sign up to win. And again, a big thank you to Prime Archery for giving us this bow to give away. So without further ado, the winner of the Prime Revix bow is Elk Talk podcast listener, Charles Rush. Congrats, Charles. We'll get in touch with you and get your specs and get you all set up with your new Prime Bow. And thanks to everyone who participated in the giveaway. 
And stay tuned because we've got more bow giveaways from Prime right here in the Reaching Your Peak podcast mini-series. And now, back to the hunt. What was it about this hunt that made it so incredible? Was it just being in the right place at the right time? Was it blind luck? He had to say there was definitely some of that involved for sure. But that experience helped me learn quite a bit more about the elk rut, especially as it relates to the effectiveness of calling. In a nutshell, here's what elk are doing leading up to the peak of the rut. The calf elk are born during the end of May and into the first week or so of June, and the cows spend their summer months herded up with other cows and calves, finding the best feed that they can find. During this time, most of the bulls, especially the more mature bulls, are going to be hanging out at higher elevations, away from the cows and the calves. You'll usually find the bulls uh, bachelored up in bachelor herds with other bulls, and for the most part, tolerating the company of the other bulls. Around the first couple weeks of August, though, the days start getting shorter, and so does the tolerance for those other bulls. During that time frame, uh, early to mid-August, the bulls start to split up from their bachelor herds, and they move off to be by themselves in areas that I call staging areas. And these staging areas are sanctuaries that put the bulls closer to the rutting grounds where the cows and calves are, and give them an opportunity to be alone as they rub the velvet off their antlers and rake their antlers to strengthen their neck muscles for upcoming battles. From late August into the first part of September, you'll start to see some smaller bulls showing up and hanging out with the cows. And there are times when you'll find some pretty incredible rutting activity in the herds as well. But this isn't the period when the cows are actually getting bred. The mature bulls are still keeping to themselves for the most part and usually not going to waste energy rounding up cows and protecting a harem, knowing that the cows aren't even ready to be bred. The estrus period for the cows, that short window of time when they're actually ready to be bred, usually hits really close to the fall equinox, which is the day when the daylight and nighttime hours are equal in length, and that's usually around the 21st or 22nd of September. And that's what actually triggers the cow's readiness to be bred, or the actual peak of the rut. Once this happens, the mature bulls had better be with the cows, and they'd better already have solved the question of who the dominant herd bull is. Because once the cows are ready to be bred, the bulls aren't going to have time to be distracted. And because they're so focused on breeding, it can be really hard to get their attention with calls once that peak rut kicks in. But that period of time leading up to the peak rut is a magical time for an elk caller. The big bulls all seem to come out of the woodwork at the same time. And they have a very short window of time to run the smaller bulls away from the herd to establish their dominance with the other mature bulls that show up and then carve out their harem and move them to a more secluded area where they'll have less competition during breeding. This all happens in a two or a three day period of time. And if I'm looking for the most intense time to be calling elk with efficiency, this is it. And that's exactly where we found ourselves during that 24-hour period on this hunt. A few days before, and there were no bugles in that meadow. The cows were all there, but the action was pretty much non-existent. Then it just seemed like someone flipped a switch, and things went from 0 to 60 
literally overnight. Mature bulls descended on the meadow from multiple different directions and began posturing and fighting, all the while being incredibly aggressive and vocal as they worked to quickly establish dominance and take control of the most cows as possible. That herd of 40 or 50 cows and calves was quickly split into those three or four smaller harems. And while they all stayed in the same general area around the meadows for a couple days, the bulls had the herd split up and they were working like crazy to keep them in their separate corners, as well as keep the other bulls from getting too close. An aggressive challenger showing up right in the middle of all this chaos was not a welcome visitor. And the reaction we saw from all three of those mature herd bulls proved that point. Every one of the three bulls that we shot in that 24-hour period left their cows and came straight into our bugles, convinced that they were the dominant bull and intent on making that known to us. A week earlier, and the action was dead. A week later, and the action was probably insane, but the likelihood of calling those bulls away from their cows as they were ready to be bred was likely pretty low. But on those two days, the action and the effectiveness of calling was off the charts. And those two days, they were the 15th and 16th of September, exactly one week before the fall equinox. And those bulls weren't messing around. There are definitely calling tactics and strategies that can be effective during all the different phases of the rut. But if you want the best chance for a once-in-a-lifetime elk rut experience like we had, that week leading up to the fall equinox has proven time and time again to be hard to beat. So was this my best day of elk hunting? Well, it definitely ranks right up there with the best of them for sure. But was this the best day for elk hunting? I think it would be really hard to argue that it wasn't. That week leading up to the fall equinox, when those bulls are showing up to really take charge of the herds right before the peak of the rut, it would be really hard to convince me that those few days in September aren't the best time to be there with a call in your hands. And until next time, I'll see you guys on the next ridge or mountaintop or wherever the elk are bugling.